Hello, hello, good morning. Howdy, whoever said that? Oh yeah, that's right, howdy. <laughs> well, good morning. If you haven't already, why don't you open your Bibles to that text, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 29 through 34. And while you do that, let's talk about the Winter Olympics. Any uh, Winter Olympics fans? <laughs> Someone said, boo. Hey, I think the Winter Olympics are, they're fascinating to me because for two weeks, a lot of people care about sports that no one cares about any other time. It's crazy. All of these sports that, like last night, I was almost yelling at the TV, watching whatever women's monobob is, some made-up sport. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, she should have known better than to go into turn two like that. Like I know something. I don't care any other time. It's ridiculous. And yet I love it. I just can't get, I can't get enough of the Winter Olympics. And what's crazy is that even though we don't really care about these sports most of the year, these athletes, it's like their life. It's all they do. I mean, that's like their whole life is dedicated to this, pretty much this moment for the Winter Olympics, the chance to compete and for us to actually care about them for two weeks until, you know, they replace them with an NBA player on the Wheaties box, right? And it's a serious sacrifice that they go through. The, the amount of training it takes to actually compete at this level, it's crazy. And none are more crazy than cross-country skiers. The cross-country skiers, these people are insane because cross-country skiing is considered to be one of the most physically demanding sports, period, where skiers burn on average in competition 30 calories per minute. Ooh, that's a lot, okay? So that's one hamburger burned every 12 minutes. Yeah, that's impressive. That's amazing. When you look at the way that cross-country skiers have to, have to train in order to sustain themselves, in order to, comp comp to compete at this sort of level, it's crazy. I just can't, I, I got obsessed with this. Let's just use one person as an example. We'll take the, uh, the most decorated winter Olympian of all time. And this really shows how much we care about this sport because we all know the most decorated winter Olympian of all time is Marit Bjergen of Norway, of course. We all love her. Yeah, 15 medals over her career. In fact, she actually won uh, two gold at the last Olympics at the age of 37. Okay, so don't mess around with Marit Bjergen. And uh, she's not competing this year, okay, but her training regimen is something worth mentioning because it's kind of the example that all cross-country skiers follow. So what does it take to compete internationally in cross-country skiing? First off, she works out 940 hours a year. That's about two and a half hours a day. And that's training. That's like training. That's not competing. That's when she's working out in the gym. Now, to be fair, a few seasons ago, she got pregnant, had a baby. Uh, and so she kind of brought down her workout regimen to only 720 hours that year, which is still over two hours a day. So, you know, you got to have some time for yourself when you're pregnant, I guess. And now remember how cross-country skiers, they burn a lot of calories, right? And so that means you have to eat a ton. Otherwise, I guess, I don't know what happens. You just vanish if you just don't have enough calories to sustain you. So therefore, Marit Bjergen, who's only about 5'6", shorter than me, if you can imagine such a person, and she has to eat 4,000 calories a day. 4,000 calories. And so keep our, that, that's 11 hamburgers a day. 11 hamburgers a day. If you've ever eaten 11 hamburgers, you know the next thing you don't feel like doing is going cross-country skiing for 30 kilometers or 50 kilometers. And so to prevent that, that means she has to eat all day long. 
constantly eating little snacks just to sustain. And so I could go on, sometimes even, just by the way, they wake up in the middle of the night because they have to, there's not enough time in the day to eat enough to sustain them. And so they'll eat like a steak at 3 a.m. It's a terrible life. <laughs> the point is, cross-country skiers are crazy, and so is the Winter Olympics. But these athletes are willing to endure this sort of difficult lifestyle, this sort of hardship, this sort of suffering, this stress that's put on their body and the discomfort, all for the sake of what? Achieving their dreams, competing in the Winter Olympics. Just imagine, though, how depressing it would be for these athletes if in the midst of putting all this work, they're up at the gym just to compete in the Olympics, they found out that there wasn't actually going to be another Olympics. There wasn't going to be this moment where they could just they could show their skills. There, there, was no, there was no point anymore. Let's just imagine, too, for the sake of analogy, that cross-country skiing was just no longer a thing. What do you think all these cross-country skiers would do? Are they going to continue waking up at 3 a.m. to eat a steak? Are they going to continue to put their bodies through these sort of extremes, eating 4,000 calories a day? Is that something they're going to continue to do? Why would anyone do that? That would be such a waste of time. Why would you continue living that sort of lifestyle if there's no point? If there's no competition, there's no thing that you're going to, that it's serving you for. When the goal of these athletes is just what they're working toward, when that's completely removed, there's no point in continuing to make the sacrifice today. And Paul's point is that he's asking a similar question to us this morning as Christians. And he's asking, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are Christians enduring hardship today? If there's, why are we doing all this? If there's no hope that we'll someday be raised, then why would Christians continue to endure hardship and be social outcasts and possibly endure persecution? If you remove this hope of a glorious tomorrow, then why sacrifice any of your glory today? So you see there's this direct link between how you think of the resurrection and how you live your life today. And Paul knows this. And so as he and many other Christians around him are in the middle of enduring hardship and suffering for the sake of the resurrection, there are some among the Corinthians who are apparently going around saying, there's not actually going to be a resurrection. It's actually removed. It's not, that's not going to happen. This thing that you're looking forward to, it doesn't exist. And as we'll see, Paul's going to strongly rebuke them this morning. He's literally going to shame them uh, because here's what Paul knows. Nothing will exhaust your Christian living more efficiently than removing the hope of resurrection. We need the hope of res resurrection, just like a skier needs calories to sustain their life. Without this hope, we have nothing to keep us going. If you try to live the life, the Christian life, without the hope of a resurrection, you will constantly find yourself running on E, without fuel, no motivation, nothing to motivate you to continue to walk in a manner in which we have been called to walk as followers of Jesus. Or to say it in a positive way, Paul's going to show us three things today. I think I have a slide. The hope of the resurrection changes how we act, how we think, and therefore sanctifies us today as we seek to submit to the rule and reign of Jesus. So therefore, it's a good and joyful thing to remember the resurrection. That's going to be Paul's exhortation to us this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text Father, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the hope, uh, the hope of Christ, 
see Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. I thank you that we have a hope that one day you will do away with all of your enemies uh, and that we'll live eternally with you in your presence. You are the goal. So we thank you for that precious hope that we have. May it change us today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's get into our strange text, beginning with verses 29 through 31. Otherwise, it's a great way to start a text. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. There's a lot going on here. But before we get into baptizing the dead or whatever that's about, we need to get a little bit of context. Okay, because that otherwise tells us that we're jumping in the middle of a conversation uh, and we need a little context to get to sort of know what's going on here. And so if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll remember uh, that, like I mentioned, Paul's been rebuking some of the Corinthians for their denial of a future bodily resurrection of the dead. Now, here's what they were saying. Yes, though Jesus resurrected from the dead, he came out of the grave alive with a body. He's forgiven our sins. They love that. They think that's great. But then they're saying that believers aren't going to experience a resurrection like Jesus's. Instead, when we die, our bodies are just going to stay dead in the ground. And our soul will live our body and we'll just we'll live forever as a disembodied spirit. And so Paul has spent most of chapter 15 saying, nope, that's not right. That's not what's going to happen. Your theology has been terribly corrupted. First off, why would Jesus be resurrected with a body, but our bodies stay dead? Isn't Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, like we saw in our text last week? Isn't his resurrection a demonstration of what our resurrection will be like? So, yes, you can't deny a bodily resurrection because he's, he's the example. And second, when Jesus returns, we know that he says he's going to defeat his enemies. And one of those enemies is death itself. Again, last week we heard the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And so if you're saying our bodies are going to remain dead when Christ returns then you're saying Jesus actually can't defeat death if they stay dead because death's that thing keeping your body from being alive. But if Jesus defeats death, then your body comes to life. They're saying their bodies won't come to life, and therefore Jesus won't defeat his enemies. So that's what Paul's been doing. He's been engaging in some theological education of the Corinthians. He's sort of been dismantling this idea that there won't be a resurrection and lifting up the very important, ever important theology of the resurrection. And now that brings us to our text this morning, where Paul shifts his focus just slightly. He turns his attention from the theology of the resurrection now to the practical application of that theology. Having shown that a denial of the resurrection doesn't work on a theological level, now he's going to show how it doesn't work on a practical level either, beginning in verse 29. That's why he says otherwise, meaning if you're saying there's no future resurrection, then what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, so what is he what's going on here? This is the difficulty about reading somebody else's mail, right? Because Paul, Paul knows what he's talking about. Corinthians know what he's talking about. But we have to put a little bit more effort into sort of interpreting what this could possibly mean. And I'll be honest, and I'll, I'll sort of speak for all of biblical scholarship, we're not real sure. 
Nobody is 100% sure what exactly Paul means when he says that people are being baptized on behalf of the dead. There are a lot of theories. One commentator says there's about 200 different theories about what he's talking about here. But I'm not going to go into all the theories, all right? So y'all can have lunch today. Instead, I'll tell you what I think Paul doesn't mean, and I'll tell you what I think he, he does mean. First, I don't think that, as it seems to suggest, if we just read this English translation, I don't think that there are people going around getting baptized on behalf of people who are dead. I don't think that that's what Paul's saying. That's what some people think, that the dead Paul's referring to are they're, they're Christians who died just before they could get baptized. And they were, just, they were just about to do it, and then they died. And so their friends and family kind of have a ceremony. They get together, and they, they're baptized on that person's behalf. Some people think that. I'm not one of them. Maybe they're right. They could be. But I think that view causes more problems than it's worth, like the fact that people are being baptized vicariously on behalf of other people. That's not okay. Don't go home and do that, please. Okay? We don't see that really happening in the early church. That just comes hundreds of years later among cults. You know, Mormons, they do that today. Christians do not. So it's a problem. Don't do that, please. Instead, I think Paul's meaning becomes much clearer once we consider who he is referring to when he says the dead. Because I don't think he's referring to dead Christians. I don't think he's talking about dead people in general either. Rather, I think Paul is speaking in that sort of dualistic way we've talked about for the past couple of weeks that the Corinthians are trying to understand life after death. The Corinthians are thinking that your soul continues living once you're dead and your body just lays in the ground. And I mean, we'd agree with that, that when a person dies, their soul is temporarily separated from the body, waits to be reunited with their body in resurrection. But to some of the Corinthians, that body is just, a, it's just dead. And that's all it's going to be, and that's how it's going to stay. And so all those bodies that are buried, we can just collectively refer to as the dead. And so Paul's asking, why are people being baptized on behalf of their dead body? If there's no resurrection of the dead. Because what are you actually doing when you're baptized? Look at Romans 6, 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, this is important. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, which is one where his body goes in the ground and his soul is separated from his body, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, where his body that's in the ground is reunited with his soul and he is raised. Bodily resurrection. And so the point being, baptism is something you're doing to your body for the sake of, on behalf of, your dead body. You're getting into the water as a sign that that body will one day be resurrected just as Christ's body was resurrected. And so when you die and your body just lies in the ground, baptism is this promise that it will not stay dead, but rather will live again. And so in that way, you're baptized on behalf of your dead body, baptized on behalf of the dead. David Garland, a New Testament commentator, says, the view that best suits the context, talking about this verse, is that Paul refers to the common Christian experience of baptism. Baptism assumes death and resurrection. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a pointless rite that falsely represents something that will not happen. The dead will not rise. And so Paul's argument 
goes like this. If there's no future resurrection, as some of y'all say, then what do people hope to gain by being baptized for the sake of their dead body? On behalf of their body. Baptism is a sign for your dead body. And if your dead body will not be raised, then why are people performing this sign that declares the contrary? I believe that's at least an appropriate way to interpret this weird argument of Paul's. But if that stresses you out, and you're just like, you're already asleep because I've been talking about dead bodies, here's all you need to hear. It doesn't really matter what exactly Paul's talking about here. We don't have to know exactly what he's talking about in order to understand this passage because here's all he's saying. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are people acting like there is? It doesn't really matter what they're doing. What matters to Paul is that the Corinthians are doing something and that something doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection of the dead. Corinthians are, are acting in such a way that only makes sense if there is a resurrection. That's all he's trying to say in verse 29. So don't sweat it. And we see he continues the same argument in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Meaning if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, why are people getting baptized? And another thing, why are we in danger every hour? Why on earth are Christians subjecting themselves to persecution, hardship, and danger every hour? Paul's saying that he and his Christian brothers are living in such a way where there is danger threatening them practically at any given moment. And he's not just being dramatic. Listen to Paul describe all the danger he's endured in order to preach this gospel of the resurrection in a later letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, which is he got whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That's the type of danger he's talking about. Oh, I didn't have my donut at the donut shop this morning. No, Paul's facing danger at every turn. And he asks, why are we doing this? Why are we living like this? Why are we in danger every hour facing all sorts of suffering if there's no resurrection, if there's no point? Because if that's the case, it's not worth it. I'm enduring all this for nothing. And he goes on in verse 31. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. This is interesting because it's written like an oath. Paul's actually he's swearing to them that he's telling the truth. He's saying, I swear, I protest. What does he swear by? His pride in the Corinthians. He says, if I'm lying, you can take away the joy that I have at having gotten to participate in seeing this little church come to faith, establishing the church, seeing you mature and grow in the faith. And that really gets the Corinthians' attention. He says, I, I, I protest by my pride in you, Corinthians. And what does he say? What is he, what is he, what is he telling them? He's certainly telling the truth about, I die every day. I die every day. Now, obviously, he's not literally dying every day. He's speaking hyperbolically, saying that he, he puts his life on the line every day. He offers his body up to be killed every day for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. And you realize that this is what Jesus calls us as believers to do as well, right? We talked a little bit about it in our theological equipping class. 
Luke chapter 9, 23 through 24. And Jesus said, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? Daily, every day, take up this torture device used only for the purpose of death, every day, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paul says, because of the hope of the resurrection, I die every day. I'm on the front lines. I face danger every hour. I'm risking my neck for this gospel. This reminds me in a weird negative way of uh, when the, pa- the pandemic first began, if y'all can remember that long ago, before masks. In 2020, early on, everything was pretty much getting locked down like everywhere. No one knew what was going on. There was chaos. People's, people were like all of a sudden out of work and hospitals are going crazy and like nurses are working overtime. It was just chaos, suffering and hardship after hardship for families all over the world, literally. But in the midst of that, I remember Ellen DeGeneres, who's a comedian, talk show host. Uh, She has a net worth, by the way, of about half a billion dollars, $500 million, and lives in a giant mansion, and she has several real estate properties. As the world is dying, going crazy, locked down, losing jobs, hardship, she posts a video of herself online from inside her mansion on her like designer sofa, breaking down into tears about how she felt. Now she knew what it was like to be in prison because of the lockdowns in California. (laughs) So yeah, people out of work, can't feed their families, nurses seeing people die of a disease they know nothing about. They're like, am I gonna die next? No idea. But Ellen's trapped in her mansion, (laughs) crying on her sofa. Paul's saying here to the Corinthians, well, not really, but I'm not like Ellen DeGeneres, he's saying. <laughs> They're different in many ways. But he's not the type of leader, he's not the type of pastor that simply rules over his flock and, and sends, the, you know, sends the grunts to do the job. No, he's one who leads by example. He's the type of leader that leads his flock by example, shows them how to do it. He's dying daily as Christ has called us to do denying himself, taking up his cross daily for the sake of the gospel in hopes of a future bodily resurrection. And he asks, why on earth am I doing any of this if there's no resurrection? Why should anyone take up their cross and deny themselves daily if there's no resurrection? And so you see that the resurrection, it affects the way that we act today. This hope of the resurrection in view affects the way we act today. Because the only reason someone would endure what Paul's enduring, and the only reason a Christian would sacrifice comfort and preference and their desires, and when at any moment you can just say, I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to put up with this. The only reason someone would continue to do that is the hope of the resurrection. Hope that this life is not the goal. The best is yet to come. One day I'm going to dwell forever with the author of life, joy, peace itself. I'm going to inherit the entire world. So, yeah, I don't have to freak out about things not going my way today. So to summarize verses 29 through 31, here's what Paul's saying. If there's no resurrection, then we as Christians shouldn't be acting this way. We shouldn't be baptized We shouldn't endure danger. We shouldn't subject ourselves to hardship of any kind 
Because it's pointless if there's no resurrection. The thing that makes Christians act the way we act, denying ourselves, facing hardship, persecution, suffering wrong, suffering injustice, and choosing to do so, is our hope that one day Christ will raise us up, defeat all of our enemies. All injustice and hardship and wickedness and even death itself will be no more. And that hope changes how we live today. That's what possesses you to continue to work through a difficult marriage. That's what possesses you to give up your wealth, give up your money, things that are valuable to you that could help you build a kingdom today and give it to others around you. That's what makes you forgive when rather you seek revenge instead. Now, Christians deny themselves more readily, forgive more easily, are more willing to lay down your comfort, your preference, your desires, knowing that a day of restoration of all things that was ever robbed from you is coming. So the resurrection affects the way that we act, the choices we make, the things that we do. And now in verse 32, Paul shows us the resurrection also affects the way we think. It changes our perspective, our worldview. It affects the way that we see the world around us. Look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? The dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what, what's going on here? First, when he says humanly speaking, he's talking about the perspective of someone who, is, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, is not spiritually informed, a person operating from a purely human perspective, human alone rather than a biblical, holy, spiritual perspective. We already saw him use this sort of language earlier on in the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so now Paul says, humanly speaking, speaking in a way that is informed by mere human wisdom rather than a perspective provided by the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul asks, what do I gain if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously nothing. He gains nothing. If you're thinking from a perspective of human wisdom, Paul would gain nothing by fighting with beasts in Ephesus. Now, before we continue, don't imagine Paul being sentenced to fight with a lion in the Colosseum in Rome. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's like I told you, don't think of a pink elephant. Now that's all you're thinking of. That's not what Paul's telling you here. Instead, beasts is probably referring to his opponents, his adversaries in Ephesus, people that were actively opposed to his ministry. It's pretty common back then to refer to your opponents uh, as beasts, people that meant to do you harm, because that's how wild beasts act, right? If you're like on a jog in McKinney and you run across a bear, as one does, McKinney, what would happen is that that beast doesn't care about your desires, about your life, about what you want to do that day. He just wants to what? Tear you, tear you apart, tear you to pieces, end your life. And that's how, that's how Paul's opponents, that's how he imagines their view of him would be. They just, his opponents in Ephesus just want to tear him to pieces. And now don't forget, it's helpful to remember, where is Paul writing his letter to the Corinthians from? What city is he in? 
Ephesus. He's there now when he's writing this letter. He's writing from Ephesus. And so Paul's in Ephesus. He's anticipating some sort of confrontation with his enemies or he might face some form of danger, might be jailed, have a whole town turned against him. That's happened to him before. And so notice he mentions these adversaries explicitly at the end of our letter, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 7 through 9. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, talking to the Corinthians. I hope to spend some time with you. He says, I want to come hang out with you all for a while, not just see you for a quick moment. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So he says, I'm going to have to face some beasts, possibly endure some difficulty, and that might take a while, so I've got to stay in Ephesus a little longer. And what's the point, though, of fighting with these guys, enduring this hardship in order to spread the gospel if there's no hope of resurrection? If my perspective is informed by human wisdom, why face any hardship? Why do any of this? Why ever obey Jesus' command to take the gospel to the Gentiles if there's no hope of being raised? He says, I shouldn't be living like this. I shouldn't be, I instead should be enjoying myself, is Paul's perspective. In fact, look at what he says. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That should be our life motto, our life verse, if the dead are not raised. Not confronting enemies that want to destroy you. Not enduring suffering, rather eating, drinking, for tomorrow we die. What's interesting is this is actually a quote from Isaiah 22. And the context of Isaiah 22 is this, it's this famous story in Jerusalem's history where their enemies, as a result of God's judgment, they've been worshiping idols, their enemies are coming to destroy the city. And so in Isaiah 22, God calls them to repent of their sins. He asks them to repent, to mourn, to fast, to beg for mercy. Turn again to me. Repent of your idolatry and your disobedience. But what do they do in Isaiah 22? Verses 12 through 13. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, wearing sackcloth. These are signs of repentance. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, is what they're saying. They see that the suffering's coming, and rather than obey God, they prioritize going out with a bang. And Paul's saying, if you subscribe to this sort of worldview, that there is no hope for a future resurrection, then yeah, living like that makes absolute sense. Focusing on fulfilling your preferences, desires, happiness today, throwing away the commands of God today, that's absolutely paramount if there's no resurrection. But your hope in the resurrection changes how you think about what you're doing, enduring today, how you deal with whatever trial you're facing today. It changes your perspective, changes your priorities. That's Paul's point. So let me just give a, a practical example we encounter often at Parkway, I think more often than anything else, in regard to marriage. If your marriage is difficult, your spouse is difficult to live with, y'all don't understand each other, you don't feel like you're ever on the same page, one of you feels like, you know, you're pulling all the weight in the relationship and the other person isn't. And they're just not the person that you married, not the person that you fell in love with, and they fill your life with more bad things than good things. I don't know. 
First of all, I'm, I'm sorry. Marriage is meant to reflect the love of Christ and his church. And I hate that that image is being marred by sin. And know this, that if you're not, you ought to be, as we talked about this morning, sharing that, shedding light on that reality in the context of community, not pretending everything's fine. That's a waste of time. If you're walking through that right now, I'm sorry. And please hear me. If there's no resurrection, why would you put up with any of that? Why would you continue to endure difficulty and a difficult marriage? At the very least, very least, why would you choose to live with someone who's annoying, who annoys you every day? Why would you ever lay down a single preference, lay down any of your desires, change anything about what you want for your life, sacrifice anything, compromise in any way? What a waste of time your sacrifice is in a difficult marriage if there's no hope of a resurrection. A waste of time, honestly. You should leave your marriage. Eat, drink, enjoy your life while you can, for tomorrow we die, right? But the hope of the resurrection changes our perspective, doesn't it? Changes how we think. It doesn't make your problems go away, I'm not saying that. It provides you, though, with an, an actual solution, a real hope beyond the present hardship. We as Christians are called to endure difficulty. Why? Because Christ was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with deepest grief. You're called to lay down your preferences. Why? Because Christ laid down his own life for his enemies. You're called to obey the scriptures, including remaining in your marriage when it's difficult, according to 1 Corinthians 7. Why? Because Christ was obedient, even to the point of dying on a cross. But what was Christ's end? How did his story end? Is he living a life of sorrows today? Is he suffering now? He definitely suffered, endured hardship. He definitely laid his life down for his adversaries, some beasts, his opponents. But then tomorrow, did he die? No, he was raised triumphant over death, raised to everlasting life. And we have the same hope. And in fact, your marriage has the same hope. If Christ can resurrect the dead, you don't think, don't think he can resurrect your relationship with your spouse? Remember again, Romans 6, 5. For if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because Jesus has gone before us. He's the first fruits. He's demonstrated to us the hope that we have the way we think about how this life can actually change. I say, I'll say it's, it's very difficult to walk like Jesus. It's very difficult to obey what Christ has commanded when our hopes are set, are living our life to the full now. That's why I said at the beginning, if you try to live like a Christian without the hope of resurrection, informing your mind, you'll have nothing motivating you to ever lay down a single preference, much less your life on a daily basis. Pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And so the resurrection, we see that it changes the way we act. The resurrection, res resurrection changes the way that we think. And now Paul's going to end by showing us how our faith in the resurrection actually sanctifies us today. 
changes us so that we begin to act like Jesus. We're conformed into his image, into people who live like citizens of the kingdom of God. Look at our final verses. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so instead of living life according to the motto of eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die, Paul gives us a better motto to live by, in his opinion, which is bad company ruins good morals. Now here's what he means. When you follow the example of people who are denying the resurrection, they're eating and drinking and disregarding the commands of God, naturally your morality, your sanctification is going to suffer. Your view of the resurrection, it affects how you live your life. It affects your morals, whether or not you walk in submission to the rule and reign of Jesus. Now just so we're clear, this motto has too many times incorrectly been applied to unbelievers. That's at least how I heard it growing up. In fact, in high school, uh, as I was, you know, sort of becoming more serious about my faith, basically all of my friends were unbelievers. And unfortunately and regrettably, I went around writing letters to my, close, my closest friends saying, you know, us hanging out isn't really going to work out anymore because y'all are bad company. You're corrupting my morals. It was terrible. I mean, I, literally, one of my biggest regrets in life was writing all of those letters. And that's, that's a horrible way to understand what Paul's saying here. Yes, don't do anything sinful with unbelievers, but that doesn't mean I, I needed to ditch all of my friends. So Paul's not saying that we should avoid hanging out with unbelievers. Rather, Paul is warning against tolerating people who are perverting the Christian faith from within the church, yet still trying to pass it off as Christianity completely undermining and perverting the gospel message so that they don't have to endure hardships. As he's already said earlier in the letter, have nothing to do with these people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 13, Paul says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What his point is that these teachers who are lifting themselves as wise, good Christian teachers, they are affecting your faith today, which has massive implications. Implications? Implications? <laughs> massive implications for your future. The hope of the resurrection conforms you today to the image of Jesus. That hope sanctifies you, causes you to walk in obedience, but removing that hope removes the motivation for sanctification. Therefore, don't be seduced by their teaching any longer, is Paul's point. Rather, look at verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Paul says, snap out of it. Who has bewitched you? Are you in a trance? Are you drunk? Stop acting and thinking in such a way that is so disoriented, so contrary to the gospel that we proclaimed. If you're living in such a way that your decisions are motivated primarily by eating and drinking in the hope of this life only, rather than the gospel of the resurrection, Paul says, wake up and do not go on sinning. And I love this because I think Paul is making a little jab as it, as, at his uh, opponents, because they have evidently gone around boasting around about their knowledge of God. We saw that especially early on in the letter. Paul talked a lot about their, their long speeches of eloquence and wisdom and knowledge. 
So Paul says, for some, these guys I'm telling you are bad company, have no knowledge of God. Some have no knowledge of God. Those guys who claim to have knowledge yet are denying the resurrection, living in sin, disregarding the commands of Scripture, they clearly have no knowledge of God, or at least they're living like it. And then he ends with this strong rebuke of the Corinthians. He says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Oof. We do not like that. We live in a very anti-shame world. All shame's bad. We all need to escape shame. But the Bible treats shame much differently. Shame's not something that you need to be afraid of. Shame's not a tool used by the Bible to hurt you. That's how we tend to think of shame. But rather, shame is meant to, to show you, to help you see that you are hurt and that you need healing. Paul tells the Corinthians who are being seduced towards a Christianity without a resurrection, their actions and their thoughts are prioritizing this life over the next, and their sanctification and spiritual growth is being stunted by bad company, bad theology. And their lives declare this idea of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And Paul says, you are bleeding. You're sick. Your faith is hurt bad, and you need somebody to heal you. I say this to your shame. That is what biblical shame does. It doesn't point to your sin and just leave you there to deal with it. It calls you to embrace the only one who can heal you. It calls you to, to turn to Jesus, like we sang, to come to Jesus, cast your burdens at his feet, to cast your sin and your shame upon him. So that's what I want us to do together as we close this morning. I actually want us to feel the weight of Paul's rebuke here. Because the resurrection ought to affect the way that we act, ought to affect the way that we think, ought to sanctify us, make us look like Jesus. We ought to be a people who look like Jesus in the way that we live, since we have a hope that though tomorrow we die, our story doesn't end there. We ought not to look like those who bite and wrestle for superiority in this life, and we ought not to be storing up treasure on earth, but rather be rich towards God. The hope of the resurrection ought to completely alter the way we live, and we ought to live a life of daily death and obedience to the command of our Lord Jesus until he returns. But here's the shame. We don't. You don't. I don't. We don't live this way. There's a shame that we feel as we, if we're honest with ourselves, we begin to examine our life and light of the resurrection, but biblical shame is not meant to point to your sin and leave you there to figure it out on your own. Rather, that shame is meant to show you you are broken and point you to the only one who can heal you. Because there's only one who can deal with your shame and his name is Jesus. So let's go to him in prayer, remember the grace we've been shown in him and as we take communion together, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. It's hard for us to recognize mercy when we deny that we have anything broken in us. I pray that we would. I pray that we would, we would rejoice, hold up, boast in our brokenness and come to you as our healer. Pray that shame would not cause us to, to try to cover up our sin. Pray that shame would not cause us to try to, to make another mistake of trying to cover over our mistakes. Rather, we would run to the mercy of your throne. We confess that we need you. We need a healer. We're broken people. 
Remind us of that now. Pray that we would rejoice as we partake of communion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.